News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC Thursday, August 20th. The closing night coming up of the Democratic Convention. I'm Harry Siegel here in Brooklyn with Christina Greer, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And Alex Brooklyn, ironically enough, in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. So it's been another uh, very busy summer week in New York City. We don't seem to get many slow ones anymore in the course of everything. Alex, do you want to just uh, give listeners a quick fill-in of the stuff they, they may already know but may have, may have missed as the news keeps pouring? I mean, so many things happened. So just some of the big ones to set the stage for this week. Uh, yesterday, that would have been Wednesday, August 19th, Black Lives Matter protesters marched all the way to police union boss Pat Lynch's house in Bayside. When they got there, his entire block had been barricaded off, presumably by the cops in the precinct, but I'm not sure. We also all received the kind of bombastic news that Bill de Blasio plans to, in the midst of a ton of cuts, lay off hundreds of EMT workers. Obviously, we don't know if there's going to be a second wave, so that is troubling to say the least. In the same week, the city, a great publication, by the way, plug, reported that New York City's first lady, Sherlane McRae, quote, nearly doubled her official staff payroll with undisclosed taxpayer-funded hires, end quote. So it seems that the only two essential workforces that aren't on the chopping block are Sherlane staff and the NYPD. Um, And then here's the big one. Bill de Blasio and Carranza plan to push ahead with the idea that they're going to open schools on September 10th. This does not jive with teachers and especially principals who are responsible for the plan that would implement all the safety protocols. They say they're not ready. Mike Mulgrew of the UFT Teachers Union threatened to strike. Quote, if a court deems that we are breaking the Taylor law, so be it. We will deal with the ramifications of it. So just a couple of quick things there. The uh, Pat Lynch thing came days after the PBA for the first time ever endorsed a president. And naturally, it was uh, Donald Trump happened at his golf course in New Jersey. Up until now, the police union that has been closest with Trump has been Ed Mullins' sergeant's union. But Pat Lynch is now in lockstep there, too. And as Trump is giving wackadoo interviews to the Post about how he's going to win New York and tweeting a bunch about it. Meantime, de Blasio says that this is going to be the safest school year ever, which, oh, my, we're going to see how this goes. But the early warning signs for parents seem pretty ominous. Their principals quietly telling parents, sign up remote to start with, and we'll get back to you once we really have it together. Maybe we'll be a couple weeks after the school year starts and a lot of political theater between the unions and the mayor about how this is actually going to play out. We'll be the only one of the 10 biggest school systems that's going to open in person at all on a staggered schedule if this happens in September. Professor Greer. (laughs) I'm shaking my head so much I might snap my neck. Like, first of all, 
How's any Black person supposed to feel safe in this city with the NYPD if Pat Lynch is endorsing Donald Trump? Period. Dot end. Like, I can't. I, I shan't. I won't. I mean, the fact that he goes to the golf course club owned by the president, Emoluments Clause, insert there, and pledges his loyalty to a man who keeps doubling down on white supremacy and anti-Muslim, anti-Black sentiments, anti-immigrant sentiments, anti-Mexican sentiments, anti-Latinx sentiments. I mean, like, I don't understand how the head of the PBA goes and gives a full-throated endorsement and then turns around and, and expects anyone to feel safe with the NYPD. That's one. Two, can November 2021 come immediately? Like, uh, listen, I'm child-free for a reason, but I do feel for parents who are trying to figure this out. And the fact that Bill de Blasio says, oh, it's great. And you teachers should act like all of our brave essential workers, like the EMTs who I'm trying to lay off and hospital workers who, you know, I've vaguely supported and all these folks who have been busting their asses since March and just tell the teachers, well, you guys should just, you know, be like your, your colleagues and like come and risk your lives and do this. Even though I had a whole summer to figure this out, even though I could have told everyone, I mean, who in their right mind thought that we'd be going back to school safely in September? Like, seriously. I, I don't, with no vaccine, n- nothing has changed. And the behaviors that we've seen across the country, but especially in New York. So now we're expecting teachers to not only be in a classroom with children, and we now know children can get it and die from it, by the way. But also we're expecting them to commute to schools. Many teachers don't live in the neighborhoods in which they teach okay, so we'll all go back to school on September 10th and then everyone will be back at home and parents will be scrambling by September 20th, tops. I mean, we can look at other cities, people, and see what happens when you don't have a plan. Meanwhile, you've got your governor who decided to write a book during the first quarter or after the first quarter of a horrific pandemic. And I pray that we're in the first quarter or at halftime, whatever it is. Halftime. I don't even think we're at halftime. Yeah. I really, I, I pray that we're at halftime. I don't even think we're at halftime, yeah. right? Who does that? That's like those people who write autobiographies and they're like 25. I'm like, settle down. What have you done? So Cuomo decides to write his autobiography. He's doing a victory lap of what, sir? The only people who are in love with you are people who are in the 49 other states, not New Yorkers. I mean, some New Yorkers, I guess, think you did a pretty good job. But like, I mean, we still have like 30,000 deaths. Is that something to write a book about? And by the by... 10 people bought your last book. So when did you have time to write this book? In between your PowerPoint slides? I mean, it's just, and we know he didn't write it, but still, I just find that it's so obnoxious. When we're on the other side of this, whatever the other side looks like, fine, write your book. I might even talk about it. But this just seems like such a navel-gazing, self-congratulatory sycophantic way to just look at yourself in the mirror and say like, I did well in Albany. And it's like, did you though? Question mark. I mean, I know it's I know it's like years ago at this point, but back in April when everyone was stuck inside of their house, he really was just like it was all Cuomo all day. The Cuomo brothers on whatever channel, right? Chris Cuomo's on. I get it. You know, and uh, a book. It's just I, I was surprised to hear that too. Well. Listen, I have lots of relatives and family members who don't live in New York who are like, I love Cuomo. You know, like all those those memes that you saw and like people are like, I'm a Cuomo sexual or whatever that means. And I was like, listen, 
non-New Yorkers love Cuomo. I think people are just enamored by the accent. They like the whole, you know, ribbing with the brother. It's theater. I get it. Under the shadow of 170,000 people dying. But sure, people need some sort of entertainment beyond Tiger King. But I don't understand how you write a book, sir, when we don't even know. We haven't had school yet. So, oh, I did such a bang-up job, except for the fact that we haven't gone to school yet. We don't know what this thing looks like. So that's that. Then, I mean, you can tell that I'm exhausted. He did the, uh, he did the poster. He oh, did- oh God, the poster. That psycho poster, which, P.S., I was about to buy for all of us just as a keepsake because I was like, this thing is so insane. When we look, when we give this to future generations, I want it <laughs> in my office so that students 30 years from now could go into my office and be like, what? is in that crazy lady's office. She's got like a bird and it's a mountain and like a trash can and a mask and a key and a boot and a hot dog. Like, it's just such a miscellaneous, like someone was like, I want to just drink and smoke a lot and then make a poster and then sell it. Sure. And this comes on the heels of the other poster that he premiered in January, which was equally as psychedelic. I mean, I, what were, I seriously like some people think that like we we have died like this is hell and we just don't know it like maybe this is some alternative universe that we're living in and we just don't get it if it weren't for these beautiful birds and like the kindness of certain people I would definitely think that this is like some sort of hellscape but then my last thing and you know I try not to talk about it you know I've been very good Harry I do not understand how in a global pandemic and a global recession, you are doubling your staff. And I don't know what you do in the first place. So I don't understand how you have all these people working for you, Madam First Lady. And this money, this money is so much money. $850 million project to where? What are we measuring? I don't I don't get it. I don't understand. I was like a speechwriter. I thought you were a speechwriter. I'm so confused and so tired. And I just feel like I might be reaching my point where this city is literally about to drive me insane. Like between the mayor, the first lady and the governor and the president. I just feel like we're adrift. Like put me on a gondola and just put me in that dirty Hudson <laughs> River that people keep swimming in. And we'll see how it goes. And give you a Cuomo poster to go with so you get a little bit of a contact high while you're dealing with all that. Just, what is going, and so here's the thing. On the heels of all that, I mean, you know, I've obviously been paying attention to the presidential, but we have to pay attention to 2021. Like, it's around the corner. Like, we see how quickly time goes. I think time flies because we're just getting older and proportionally to our entire life. I think that's what's happening. I don't want to admit that, but that is, I think, why it is that years fly by these days. But, like, being mayor of New York is a huge deal. <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone knows that. It's not something that's like you just wake up. It's like, I think I could do that. I know lots of men probably listening to this podcast think that they could do it. P.S. You can't. But we really need someone who takes this job seriously. Like, I, I know that that sounds real basic kind of like Black Lives Matter. <laughs> doesn't seem like it should be a radical statement. But yeah, it is. If you're going to be mayor of New York City, I kind of need you to take it seriously and understand all of the moving parts. And I just feel so let down by leadership. Can I throw in there for, for a second? I wrote a column, I think last week. They're all blending. They're all uh, blending. 
what is it? Uh, time, time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. But I wrote a column saying... Okay, Alex, P.S. Harry is the one who designed the posters, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> or as we like to call him, Larry. Larry Seagull. designed that poster. With, now, don't give Cuomo ideas. I'll have like a banana and a fruit fly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a grammar joke, fellas. Um, so, so, so just a couple of serious things to say. Like, no, I don't think that the conversation about what's happened in New York has moved on since February, right? That the virus changed the basic economics, the money we're looking at and the circumstance we're looking at. And because we don't know what's going to happen in November and thus how much money there is that nobody in the political arena is willing to show leadership and talk about stuff except slightly de Blasio with his batshit school opening which is bad, bad leadership, but is a <sighs> genuine attempt. By the way, with Sherlane, the best thing was, I forget which deputy mayor, but someone is usually not a dummy, went on Twitter and was like, no, it's totally cool that she has a gigantic shadow staff because everyone in the administration has one. That's just mm. how it works. And that's mm. how it always works, which is true, but quite the fuck you in the midst of, you know, a, a big talk of citywide layoffs. One more Cuomo thing that I think it's important to bring up and will get us to the convention where uh, Cuomo, who is shoot me now in every sense, the 2024 poll leader for the Democratic nomination at the Mm -hmm. moment. Well, so was Herman (laughs) Cain at one point in time. So there we are. From 999 to 666, you can cut that joke out. But my goodness. We will not. We will not cut that joke out. Andrew Cuomo today signed a bunch of election laws that are hopefully going to make voting a little easier in New York in the midst of the pandemic and the rest of this. This seems real important because our primaries a couple months ago did not go well and seemed like a real dangerous sign for November. You know, it took weeks in a bunch of Mm -hmm. cases to figure out who won races. And he's hopefully fixing some of this. But Chrissy, before we get to the convention, is New York BOE plus U.S. BS a recipe for disaster for NYC. Absolutely. Absolutely. First of all, I'm just going to put something out there. Harry's been spending too much time in the Catskills because these jokes are very uh, dirty dancing. You remember they were in the Catskills from like, what, the mm. 60s or whatever? That's basically, Larry's turned into an old man from the Catskills. That's Solomon what. Burke on the soundtrack to this, <laughs> whose song, None of Us Are Free, I thought of when uh, Kamala Harris said, you know, uh, uh, none of us are free until, but his song was... on Don't Give Up On Me, which is like a 2005-ish album, like old man at that point, I think he was working, doing funeral stuff, but then also singing, is one of the uh, the great albums of the last 20 years, strongly endorsed. Okay, I thought that she was quoting Frederick Douglass, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, Frederick Douglass is, is very rare on Bible, I believe. Right. Yeah, Frederick Douglass totally ripped off Solomon Burke in <laughs> right, 2005. Exactly. Oh, it's great. Donald Trump, they're both doing great things here. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Um, so I'm sorry. What was the question? Uh, uh, what's going to happen with, with, with the vote in New York? Oh, the voting. Service and Cuomo's new laws. You and, know, yes. listen, here's the dirty little secret that we don't like to talk about. It's Democrats and Republicans in the state of New York who don't want to make it easy for people to vote. Right? Like the incumbency advantages that folks have in the state of New York are such that 
if we really wanted to change our election laws, we would have done so a long time ago. I mean, the fact that we're one of the few states where you literally have to give them a pound of flesh and a pint of blood to get an absentee ballot. I'm being slightly hyperbolic, so don't write me. I think it's it speaks volumes as to how the party leadership, plural, both Democrats and Republicans, don't want newcomers. Like, they don't want nobody who nobody sent. And we finally reached a point where it's just like, it's wrong. We shouldn't put up all these barriers. And so now when we know that more and more people are going to have to use absentee ballots, well, first of all, they're going to have to fill out the application to receive an absentee ballot weeks later and hope that they receive it in time so that they can put it in the mail, which may or may not get there. I told you I mailed mine from Delaware. I have no idea if my ballot ever even made it. I, I just worry because the last thing we want to do is erode away the confidence that voters have in the system. It's bad enough that voters don't have confidence in half the elected officials and candidates out there. We don't want them to feel like the, the actual processes fail them as well. So that's my worry and that's my fear. And then you've got a governor who's so busy looking in the mirror and tapping away at his keyboard, talking about how great he is, he's not worried about the real structural issues. Because we know that Cuomo is a Mr. Johnny-come-lately on like half the major issues of importance. Remember with like marriage equity, he was like, we're the first big state to pass marriage equity. I was like, also known as the 17th state to pass it. Like he's never the first to lead something. He's always in the middle of the road, but he loves, he loves the PR machine to say that he's the first and leading the charge. It's like, read a book, dude. You're like hella late. And I I fear that he's too busy patting himself on the back about this coronavirus, which will sadly not go according to plan because yes, I'm a social scientist. No, I'm not a medical scientist, but I do read and I do have a modicum of common sense. And we know that putting hundreds, if not thousands of school children in a single building with lots of adults and everyone goes back to their own communities and neighborhoods via public transportation, it's going to be pretty difficult to keep a safe environment. Last I heard, that wasn't rocket science. So Cuomo is not keeping his eye on the ball. He'll give lip service about like, we can't have fraud and we have to worry about the BOE. And he loves a buck passing. He loves passing a buck. So he'll blame the BOE. He'll talk about how, I don't know, they should have done this. It's like, stop with your Monday morning quarterbacking And actually, you have time to do something. It's August, Governor. It's August. Get into it. I have a question, Chrissy, though, just to roll it back to what you were saying in the confidence in voting. Do you really think that people still have a confidence in the process? I was watching Mm -hmm. a couple months ago. I mean, I was watching Plot Against America and spoiler alert (laughs) at the end, (laughs) there's like a nod to voter fraud. You know, you've got this alternate reality where FDR had to run again in order to win the presidency. And at the end, everyone is just like dumping ballots out in the black and Jewish neighborhoods. A very similar kind of song montage to the end of the first season of The Wire, actually. But, you know, David Simon, Mm -hmm. well, David Simon. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think sadly, if we're honest, we've had, you know, instances of voter fraud. I mean, 20, the year 2000, like, 
what went down in Florida? Like, we've never really talked about that as a country because we don't. We are like, we have these Puritan values where we just pretend like nothing's going on, i.e. we can have 400 years of chattel slavery and like, let's not talk about it. That was that was that and everybody was on bad behavior. So what are you going to do? Like, we don't talk about major things in this nation. So we haven't really ever dissected what happened in 2000 and like what that really meant for our democracy to have hanging chads and missing ballot boxes and Broward County and all the things that went down. And then all of a sudden, you know, this all happens to take place coincidentally in the state of the brother who's running for office. And then it goes to the Supreme Court and they rule in favor of the son of a former president who actually put those justices on the court. And they're like, oh, and by the way, we're going to rule this way, but never, ever, ever use this as precedent. Like we never talked about that really as a country. Sorry, Harry, what are you going to say? No, take back. No, that's it. That was, that, that was Roger Stone, Brooks Brothers Riot, and the, the one-off. Like, uh, we're doing this thing, but this thing has no precedential yeah. value. It, it, Don't it's, ever it's, do it again. Don't yeah. ever do it again. And so we've never talked about that as a nation. So, you know, we can look at what went down in Florida in 2018. We can look at what went down in Florida in, two, in Georgia in 2018. We, we can look at Ohio in 2004. I mean, sadly, we do have ways that Black and marginalized communities have been excluded from the process. I think it's a very real threat. I don't think people go and vote. Like, I'm not voting, you know, twice. I I think that's bonkers. I think the president always projects what he wants to happen and says that other people do it. But I do worry that there's a lack of faith, especially amongst young people, that's growing in the process, especially because, sadly, the way it's oftentimes framed, if you don't have results right away then it's fraud. It's like, no, sometimes you do have to count. And, and depending on the laws, and most people don't know election law, but you know, in certain places, they can't count absentee ballots until the night of the election. So everyone's like, mail it in early. It's like, okay, well, it'll sit in the office because they cannot, by law, start counting before November 3rd. So obviously, if you have 10 times the number of people who are voting absentee, you're going to need more and more folks to start counting that. And it's going to take longer and it might not be done on election night. And so we have to sort of set up realistic expectations for people to understand the various laws in their states so they don't think fraud is occurring when it's not. Sometimes it's just rules. Sometimes it's just incompetence. Sometimes it's, oh, we thought these people were going to come in and count these ballots, but half of them are sick because we're in the middle of a global pandemic that has been handled poorly. So just to return to a couple things here, right? The way our elections work, every state administers their own election. The rules change very dramatically. And when you start getting into it, maybe this comes down to one state. And this stuff, it means that you have a lot of secretaries of state and lower level characters who suddenly can end up being tremendously important, as we saw again in Florida and may well see in 2000 this November. The best vote stealing joke, which I think goes back to the 60s, is still the one with the two guys in Chicago at the graveyard and the writing down names. And the one guy turns to the other and is like, why are you lingering at this grave, right? And he says, ah, man, he's got just as much a right to vote as the rest of them. (laughs) Gay marriage in New York. (laughs) Signal before you turn, Harry. Where the hell are we going? (laughs) I'm just returning to a few things and then I'm bringing us forward. This is, you'll see, uh, change you can believe in, path to the future, bridge to the 22nd century. Uh, Gay marriage in New York. Cuomo did do that different than other states because it was through the legislature and not the Supreme Court. As it happens, 
He managed to get that through the legislature when Republicans still ran half of it, which he loved, because a certain Mike Bloomberg bribed people to vote the right way. And that was Cuomo's great leadership there. And it worked. So, so sure, give Cuomo a little credit. Mike Bloomberg, 100 days, billion bucks, American Samoa, and then poof, disappears with none of that. Don't worry, you can vote for me. I'm going to give big to the uh, Democrat. He'll be speaking at the convention tonight. I cannot wait. I'm very interested. You better bring a damn check. You know, can we talk about something really quickly? I know we're going to talk about the DNC in a second. For sure. Bring it to the DNC and that'll be our our complete. Yeah. And hey, shout out to Phil Walzak putting all that together. Favorite Wisconsinite. So I didn't see the whole all 50 states trip around the world and, and the territories because I was on New York one and we waited until sort of New York was coming up. And then we waited until Delaware sort of came back around so they could nominate. But we we did see a few states, which was really lovely. And I loved the geographic diversity. I loved the racial and ethnic diversity. I loved the outfits that were sort of particular to certain regions. And I loved Puerto Rico and, and all Spanish. But American Samoa, and I get it, we've got military bases there. But the sight of the imperialism was a little too much for me. I was like, give me a warning when you see indigenous people in beautiful floral outfits and then like military personnel with masks on in the background. I was like, what Star Wars nonsense is this? It was really jarring and it was so indicative and just such a reminder of like what this country is and like the work that we still have to do. I I was quite moved actually going through all the different states. I loved the different, like some people chose regular people. Some people had, you know, electeds. Like I thought Pennsylvania was really touching. I thought Rhode Island was awesome. Come get your calamari. Like it was like, okay, sure. Nobody vetted this, but whatever. You know, um, I didn't see Matthew Shepard's parents, but I, I saw it on Twitter. Uh, so, I mean, so clearly certain states thought about this and it was really powerful. But yeah, the American Samoa just kind of, mm. I was really actually choked up on New York. I didn't understand why Kathy Hochul was there. It was like, I could do without that. But I thought the two black female immigrants care workers was very indicative of like a New York narrative that I think a lot of families can relate to, especially during COVID. If they didn't interact with West Indian essential workers before they definitely have during this pandemic. And I, I don't know, I was pretty touched. The military is actually investigating what happened in American Samoa now, because for obvious reasons, whatever the, the truth of empire and imperialism and that sort of stuff, they have taken pains to not be used in partisan politics in that way. Mm-hmm. And apparently weren't aware, you know, at higher levels that that was happening. I recommend that everyone go to the Daily Beast and read S.C. Cup's opus, The Rise of Calamari, fueled by Rhode <laughs> Island's dirty politics, which is how basically the state figured out they had all the squid they couldn't sell. And then all these corrupt paws are like, we're just going to rename it, rebrand it and make it iconic. And they did. Which, oh, which is that what I mean? I'm allergic, so I can't eat it. But is that how calamari came about? It is. And you should read all about it. It's actually, it's, it's a little insane and a lot of oh, fun. Interesting. And with, I know that there was that big scandal where people were selling stuff that wasn't calamari and they said it was calamari. And it was like <laughs> pig intestines or something. 
Um, you know, any, anything weird, gross, and fried, you can just be like, here's calamari. Is my, uh, <laughs> my Speaking of Solomon Burke, pig intestines is actually pretty big in the South, in uh, Solomon Burke's hometown near Clarksdale, Mississippi, where I actually got probably one of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten in my life. It's like bo- it's like boiled pig intestines with French's yeah. French's yeah. yellow mustard in a. Well, she doesn't she doesn't she doesn't do mustard. Um, but like you know, she, my mom is from a tiny, tiny, tiny town in northern Florida, and so I will say, I just got back from Martha's Vineyard, and everyone's like, "Ooh, you're fancy." You went to Martha's Vineyard. I was like, "Whatever." Like I've been going to the same house since I was a child. It's not uh, it's not fancy at all. But my mom hadn't been back in decades. And, and hadn't seen a lot of these fancy friends in decades. And what I thought was hilarious was she brought a massive amount of pig's feet. And literally, people came from far and wide for my mother's pig feet. So it's like executive here, architect there, ad exec, you know, president of this. And everyone's like, I heard your mom has pig's feet. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're like... They're delicacies for some, but they're like a reminder of home for many. So yeah, chitlins are the intestines. Pig's feet are exactly what they say they are. They are <laughs> the feet of a pig. <laughs> but some people like to be fancy and say trotters. So uh, just one more return to Solomon Burke here, because I uh, oh, really can't talk enough about Solomon Burke, really. So the DNC and how it relates to NYC. Uh, showcasing of young talent. Folks are salty. AOC got a limited amount of time. John Kerry and Bill Clinton got more than a lot of rising stars, I would argue. But I do love the fact that, I mean, listen, I think that for a virtual convention, first time, it's been fantastic. I really like the fact that the Democratic Party has a lot of ideological diversity and it's a complicated big tent and we're trying to fit in as many people as possible. So you have John Kasich going right before Bernie Sanders. But I do think the inclusion of AOC means that like there is a nod to progressive politics. You can't ignore the left wing of the party. So sure. She didn't get a three hour primetime speaking spot, nor should she have. Um, So we'll see what happens in the next four years. She might have a, a much better spot as she continues to prove that she works on behalf of not just the Bronx, but marginalized people across the country. So there's one. Let's see. What else was I really impressed with? Um, Well, you know, my heart's always with Nancy Pelosi, so that's Baltimore. I think the addition of our former senator, Hillary Clinton, was solid in her suffragette white as a reminder of people how you can be close, but no cigar. So that's our second kind of New York reference. Yeah, I've been really excited. I mean, I thought Kamala Harris's speech was a great introduction speech. You know, it's it's sort of, we are a nation of immigrants. Obviously, New York represents the epicenter of this kind of melted, blended family. I really do think that this idea of her blended family from the past and the present is really important because it normalizes so many families. Most families in America, honestly, if they're being honest with themselves, it's like it may not be their immediate family, but their extended family has someone who is not of their racial ethnic group. So the fact that it's like, this is what it is, kids. It is what it is, kids. Like, this is what families look like. I I thought was powerful. What I really thought was powerful also was that, you know, sort of A, giving this shot, like the little shady nod to the birther racist nonsense, saying that she was born in Kaiser Hospital. But I do think that so many immigrant parents do look at their child born on American soil and it's like, wow, could they one day be president of this massively complicated country? It always makes me sad when people have these major moments and they talk about how they miss their parents. You know, as someone who's lucky enough to still have both of her parents, 
I thought about that with Obama, like when he was on stage, when he won, no, what it was in November 4th, 2008, you know, the only blood relatives he had on that stage were his two daughters. Like there was no one else on stage with him, no relatives in that sense. And so it always sort of makes me think about the work that families do to get people where they are. And then once you're at the top of whatever mountain it is that you've climbed, you don't have the person to, to sort of physically, I mean, obviously we know her mother is celebrating, but like physically celebrate with. So there's, it's always this like bittersweet moment, but I think the tone has been solid. We'll see how Uncle Joe does tonight. Uh, it has been a little bit of a march of the dinosaurs at times, but I think that that's just sort of, you have to recognize like, you know, some people want that. Some people want to see Bill Clinton. Some people, you know, need to see Jim Carrey, John Kerry. Yeah. Some people, Alex is like, what? Who? It's like a lot of old black people still ride with Bill Clinton. A lot of old white people still ride with Bill Clinton. He, you know, he's one of the few two-term Democratic presidents in modern history. And at the time, his policies were what people wanted. Like, they just don't hold up over time. But I mean, like, at the you know, time, we're into it. I, at the time, I don't think his policies were a lot what people knew they would be. And as far as like a nod to the left, my personal opinion is that it just wasn't, it wasn't enough. But I mean, that's coming from the position I'm in. Uh, I wanted to bring up two things that I found really interesting. You want interesting. Bernie to be accepting the nomination tonight. It's, I mean, no, it's... got as a spitting <laughs> of a television that it's finally the same. Bernie could spit all over anywhere. I love his outtake where he's like he's like shooing his wife away. I could it could be it's very Larry Siegel if I'm if I'm honest. Um, but uh, but shout out to Jason Johnson who wrote an article for the Grio talking about the board of the USPS and how Bernie Sanders consistently voted against the board. And so this is how we have this like Trump uh, sycophants as the board of the USPS who's allowing all this nonsense to happen. So check that out. Well, the the two things I wanted to bring up that was interesting, uh, New York's own Jessica Ramos tweeted out during Obama's speech, hearing Obama's voice certainly strikes a chord of nostalgia to better days. Then I remember he deported 5 million of our loved ones. Clinton deported 12 million. Um, also critical was Julia Salazar who said in a tweet about an entirely unrelated part of the DNC. I'm going to vote for Joe in November, and I get it, but I'm not going to pretend to love this montage of sexual assault survivors giving canned, seemingly tokenized endorsements of him. I'm not a fan of that. And I will say that it seemed to a lot of younger progressives, and these are two uh, state senators who came in on the Bernie wave. They ousted the IDC uh, after AOC won against Joe Crowley, and they're two extremely progressive women that are on the rise that managed to, you know, hold their districts. And they kind of are, are echoing a sentiment that I think is felt far and wide that the Democratic Party is not doing enough. Already we have abandoned healthcare. We're starting to hear, you know, scratches of kind of almost like an irrelevant straw man being made out of the Green New Deal and that some of the deregulation that Trump perpetuated on fossil fuels and water protections are not going to be Biden's first priority. So it comes off a lot as this false, glossy, empty showmanship that I think a lot of young people are really, really tired of. No, I, I think that that's, I think that's fair. And I think it's totally valid. A, I want to see what Biden says tonight to see if he'll weave in some of those critiques. And I want to see what they do in the next 
few weeks and who they bring into the fold, right? I mean, I feel like having Elizabeth Warren in such a prominent spot meant something. Um, and, you know, and sort of her values, but sort of seeing how Biden says it tonight, because tonight's lineup is sort of like a little bit of, I think it's the dinosaurs again. No. Um, we know his wife has the backbone of a ramrod. I like ramrod? Lordy, <laughs> Lord of mercy. <laughs> I literally texted that to Emily No while we were on TV. I was like, ramrod? Oh, Joey. But, hey, listen, this is what we're going to, I would much rather that than like, I think all Mexicans are rapists. Like I'll take, I'll take ramrod any day over really egregious. Like, I don't think Muslims should be in this country. Like, I don't want that type of language. I don't want that type of president. And so I think for the progressives, it's like, listen, with Trump, you get nothing. With Biden, you can push him, but we at least know he's he knows Bernie Sanders. He loves Bernie Sanders. He knows Elizabeth Warren. He may not know AOC, but at least he's smart enough to know, A, what he doesn't know, and B, possibly work with people like in a compromise, some sort of position. So you get something. I mean, nothing in this country you're going to get whole hog. So like the purity test to me is just sort of like, well, then let's be at the table so we can negotiate. I think what one of the one of the sentiments that Jessica Ramos tweet shows is just that like during the Obama years, Democrats went to sleep and all of that stuff managed to happen under, you know, an Obama presidency. So I think it's just kind of like a like nobody wants a return to that under Joe. Yes. And I know, listen, Adam's going to just beat us. Adam, just make this like an outtake. But this will just be like the after hours talk of Chrissy and Alex figuring out (laughs) progressive and moderate politics. And, you know, I'm like, I consider myself like a pragmatic progressive. But I definitely think that people don't want 2008. And I don't think that Joe Biden uh, is going to be allowed to have the 2008 redux, per se. But, you know, like Obama deported hella people. And so I think though, we have to just like keep putting pressure on folks, you know? And like, I think the Democratic Party was just so self-congratulatory because they elected a black man that it's just like anything goes. And like, luckily he wasn't a monster. Luckily he wasn't totally incompetent. Like we are so thankful that Obama wasn't what this current president is because the Democratic Party was just like, we're just so excited. Like we're not the racist ones. It's like, yeah, but we can still hold him accountable. And they're obviously a lot of my colleagues have written books about the complexity of black people holding a black elected official accountable because we know the racism that he faced was just beyond my wildest dreams. So it's like, we want to put pressure on you and we're disappointed at times, but we know saying that puts you in a really tough spot because there's so many people waiting for you to fail and trying to set up everything in their power to do so so that you fail, you know, looking at the Republican Party for eight years, just making sure he could barely get anything passed. So to bring this local again for just one second. Yes. Right. There, there's this abysmal racist National Republican Party. There's a New York Republican Party that doesn't matter at all. And that's part of why we can have our politics be so adrift is that there's not any serious or responsible other party to apply any sort of of pressure. And so things are getting worked out entirely within democratic politics in a way that that if you're a true and loyal Democrat or you're a hardcore progressive or whatever you are, I think is just unhealthy. Did did de Blasio get invited to speak at all? No, no, he did not. (laughs) Not not even a little bit. That's a perfect note to end on. Um, Listeners, you're going to learn something. De Blasio (laughs) ran for president. I sometimes like to ask questions I know the answer to just to see how I can get a response. (laughs) Do you think he'll ever come on the show again? 
I, I've followed up several times and I'm like, <laughs> I'm just, I, I do it every we're, We'll be lucky if when he sees us, he doesn't give us like a backhand slap. Like, no, he's not coming on the show. He's not coming on the show. He, he's, he's blocked <laughs> me from asking questions at his press conferences, I believe. They're not even responding to my follow-up emails about the show. You are welcome back on anytime, Mr. Mayor. I think Let's our see, first has he, very fair. he hasn't blocked you on Twitter, has he? <laughs> he's not that Trumpy yet. Not yet. Boom, boom. FAQNYC um, is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but we recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. Special thank you, as ever, to our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, to our guest and co-host, Professor Christina Greer, running things, to Adam Kamara, mixing, mastering, slicing, dicing, chopping, you name it, he does it. Uh, Till next week, be safe, be cool. Be FAQ, wear a mask. Also, we want to shout out our friend Victoria Bekempis. She has started a newsletter. It's called Allegedly. All the all the shit that's fit to know in the courts in New York City, which is actually kind of crazy important if you consider the last year from Weinstein to Cuba Gooding Jr. to Chapo. Um, so Victoria Bekempis has always been an in-the-courts reporter extraordinaire. Check out her newsletter on Substack called Allegedly. Generally, when we tweet about it, it's in all caps. I'm sure you can find it. Okay, and then wait, last thing, because clearly I miss you all because we, we don't want to go. One, shout out again to Phil Walzak in Wisconsin putting together a great DNC. And two, shout out to our last week's guest, Sally Goldenberg, um, who talked about, you know, we talked about the mayor's race and what to expect. And then she tweeted, I think, yesterday about Catherine Garcia, uh, the mayor's sanitation commissioner and go-to person for nearly every crisis, is talking to consultants and labor business leaders as she seriously considers leaving her job to run for mayor, which is something that Sally mentioned on the podcast, and we sort of talked about it just a little bit. So if you missed that conversation, uh, go to last week's episode so you can hear Sally's analysis of 2021, mayor's race. And last, last, last thing, <laughs> for real though, allegedly.substack Dot com. It's free. It's really good. It's a wrap up of all the courts and criminal justice news happening in New York, which is great shit. And and I literally just said that. an original story <laughs> every goddamn week. And they're really good. Like this is reporting that wouldn't exist otherwise. Sign up for this newsletter. Get it. Be like a smarter, better person. Do that shit. Wait, Alex. price on post. We just did Alex this. F- Alex F- A-Q. A-Q.